0: This is Dr. Hansen. I'm the president of World Ministries International. I want to welcome you to the warning television program, radio program, those that are watching on social media or shortwave listening. Welcome. We're in our chapel at World Ministries International. It's a live audience where we do a weekly staff service. I have a special guest. His name is Jerry Crawford, alias The Zebra Man. And I think you can tell if you're just looking at him, especially his head. The Zebra Man from Ethiopia. Jerry, welcome to the Warning Program. Thank you, sir. Yeah, nice to be here. And our chapel. And your
1: chapel's beautiful. Thank you. It's interesting to be an American and also to be Ethiopian. I often say I was born American, I was born again Ethiopian. Because on the inside of me, I live all Ethiopia. Essentially, you can't choose where you're born. You're just born wherever you come out. So when I am with my people of Ethiopia, I look at them and they have a lot different life than I have here in America if I was to be here. And with that vision of understanding that they were born there, they didn't do anything to make theirself there. That God loves me just as much being born in Southern California as he loves them being born in an outlying village somewhere in the nation of Ethiopia. So we're the same people. We can have different color skin, we can speak different languages, but we still are the same people. So God's made that very clear to me, which has made it so wonderful to live this kind of life. But as I was sitting in the chapel, and by the way, thank you for being here. It's so cool to sit amongst such anointed people that do such an amazing thing in the world. I'm often astounded at how God does things through people. I think what He's done in my life, what He's done in your lives, I don't do much of this kind of conversation with people. Most of mine is just kind of living it out. So standing behind an executive desk or putting a pulpit up here really doesn't change me very much. I'm pretty much the same all the time. But I see the flags here, and I'm reminded of my father who served in World War II. And the things that many people have gone through from wars, that we have a wonderful nation. And I'm very thankful that I've grown up here. When Jesus came to my house two years ago, it was much like Peter on the rooftop where he was praying. It was in the middle of the day. He was waiting for lunch to be made. He was saying at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, he was doing nothing more than praying and waiting for food to be made. While that was taking place, the Bible says that the sky was torn apart and a sheet came down from heaven. And in that sheet were all kinds of different animals. A voice said to Peter, Rise and eat. And Peter said, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And this happened three times. And then the sheet went back up to heaven, the sky closed up. After that moment, three men that had come from Cornelius' household, where Cornelius was a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who loved God, but didn't know God the way others know him, but he still worshipped God, paid tithes, or did alms for the people. So the angel came to this man and said, send to Joppa for a man named Simon Peter, he'll tell you the way of salvation kind of story. So he sends his people. While Peter was pondering this open sky vision, it says that the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, three men seek you. Go with them, nothing doubting. The result of that was Peter went with these men to Cornelius' household, and he said, why have you called for me? What is the purpose of this? And Cornelius tells him, three days ago I was praying at the hour of prayer, and an angel said to send for you to come tell me something. And he says, ah, now I'm starting to understand this vision, this sky-opening, sheet-dropping, wild-animal vision. And now I'm sitting here with Gentiles where I'm not allowed to come into your home. So the Lord linked those things together for me in the scriptures because he comes to my house in Seattle and the sky opens up and Jesus comes down from heaven and sits down on my deck with me. I'm sitting outside on my deck in the cool spring morning and I'm drinking a cup of coffee. Jesus puts his coffee cup down next to mine. And I look, I say, I didn't know Jesus drank coffee. (laughs) But the story is he took me to the nation of Ethiopia. The sky tore apart, just like in Peter's vision. The sky just tore apart. And the trees that were in front of me, and the shrubbery that was in front of me, and the house that was over on the other side, they're gone. And there's nothing more than this huge stadium. In America, we call it a football field, a soccer field. In Africa, it's football. But here, it would be a a soccer stadium or a football stadium. Same thing, size-wise. And there's about 10,000 dark-skinned people out in front of me. And I'm standing on a platform about this high off the ground, with Jesus and this is the beginning of the conversation he has with me about going to the nation of Ethiopia the conversation included many things cuz he stayed for 40 minutes and after the end of the 40 minutes i looked down and his cup's almost empty he's been drinking his coffee it's interesting how you understand things in the spirit when you're with god that you don't have to figure it out i can tell we're about finished with the vision because he's just about finished with his coffee the coffee is real key to the vision again i asked the lord why did you come have coffee? I don't get it. And he said, when we're finished, you're going to find out that Ethiopia is the origin of coffee. And they have a thing in their country called a coffee ceremony. And I said, I thought Starbucks was the origin of coffee. (laughs) He said, No, Ethiopia. So I said, okay, just to kind of put the story in perspective, Jesus leaves. I go in and Google origin of coffee on my computer and it's Ethiopia. I'm stunned because I'm trying to figure out the vision. Much like the scripture about Peter says he was perplexed about the vision, what the meaning of it could be. So he didn't have instant knowledge of everything. He had the vision and he still had to work it out. So I go in and I Google origin of coffee and it's Ethiopia. And I'm thinking, that was really Jesus, I'm thinking. And then a few lines down in the search engine, it says... Coffee ceremony, Ethiopia. And I look at that, and that's exactly what he said. Their coffee ceremony is where they get together, they roast coffee, they grind coffee, they percolate the coffee, they share the coffee, and they sit around and have conversation. That's their conversation time. Not like us, get it, put it in your cup holder and drive down the road 10 miles an hour faster than you're supposed to. And drink it as fast as you can so you can get to work or get wherever you're going. And then find somewhere else to get another cup. There they slowly drink it and have conversation. And Jesus said, this coffee ceremony that I had with you is what they do in their nation. So as you're doing and they do it every day, all the time. So what's going to happen is every time you see coffee ceremony, you're going to remember everything I told you. It's a link to your memory, to the vision and the plans, the purposes I have for you in the nation of Ethiopia. You'll never forget, I came to your house. Everything that I do in your life is a pure miracle. And you'll see every miracle I do. Sometimes we think of miracles as the blind eyes opening, the deaf ears unstopping, The mute speaking, the physical body being healed, and I've seen all that now that I've gone to Ethiopia. That's all happened. All those kind of miracles happen. But there's many other things that he does that sometimes we don't notice, that he wants us to notice. That's why he said to me, you're going to see these things through these coffee ceremonies that I put you in. i had been in America here in the Seattle area. i had been a real estate broker for about 20 years, had a very successful career lots of wealth and income from it. And then the Holy Spirit kind of moved me into becoming a land developer, which I became a land developer, and then I became a home builder. In simple words, I was a general contractor. So I built houses, I built subdivisions, and my personal income was in excess of a million dollars a year. My personal income. My company income exceeded that, but my personal, they make you draw a salary even when you don't need money. It's a requirement by the IRS, so you pay tax on it as if you did draw it. So I have all this wealth, I have all these homes, I have many homes, I have many rental properties, I've been married 35 years, in 2019, the woman I was married to gets cancer, she dies and goes to heaven. It's interesting because people often say, I'm sorry, you know, the normal empathy. As the Lord helped me process it, one of the things I learned was, you're not sad too long when your best friend goes to heaven ahead of you. So when you have a marriage relationship where you're best friends, and your best friend leaves you and goes to heaven, you don't really sorrow for too long. You miss the future of what you were thinking you were going to live out together. But you don't so much miss the present thought process of, well, she's having a great time, what she's doing. And I often ask the Lord, who got the best deal? I got Ethiopia, she got heaven. You know, because I'm so blessed and so happy in the nation of Ethiopia, I think I got the better deal. God's just been so kind to me with these kind of things. I was going to tell you, if I was to give a title to this message, it would be called For Mature Audiences. I'm going to read you a scripture from Isaiah and I'll try to explain the hair thing to you because it's, the hair thing was not my idea, okay? My mom died at age 90, perfectly healthy, no loss of anything, maybe mobility, just a little bit of pace, but no sickness, no disease. So at 90 years old, she gets pneumonia, dies two days later and goes to heaven. And my friend's a surgeon. He says, that's the best way to die, Jerry. In the world of surgeons, we call that the old man's friend. We have a name for it. That's the best way to die because you don't go through a long series of medical treatments and suffering and surgical procedures. You just get it. The pneumonia fills your lungs with water. We give you a little comfort care medication. You're still fully conversant, but you're not struggling. And you go. And that's how my mom died. I don't know why I told you that. Except that this story is for mature audiences. My mom likes to go to church. She had been in Arizona. We moved her to Seattle when we had children. She wanted to be a grandmother. We were happy to have her. So she's visiting different churches. She found this one church. Our family was raised Methodist. So really traditional Methodist church kind of thing. Lots of good Bible hymn songs, a little bit of preaching, a little bit of bingo, and everything's good, okay? She says to me one day, well, I'm going to have to find a different church. I said, why? She said, well, this church is dead. I said, how do you know it's dead? So I visit with her sometimes at her church. She says, okay, we're standing in the back. She says, look around. And all the people are facing forward. There's maybe 120 people in the room. She says, look at all of them. I said, yeah? It's just that they're all dead. I said, what do you mean? Everyone's gray hair. There's no young people in this church. I need to get out of here. I don't want to die with them. There's no youth in this church. We brought a youth group in that was traveling. They played music. They did things to try to widen the church up, and people didn't like it, and so we don't have any more youth coming into the church. So I'm finding a new church, and she did. But it was interesting that her perception was accurate. The church was dying because it was all gray heads, And there was no youthful part to the church. And she just didn't want to be part of it. Which ties to the story about when Jesus came to my house, he said, want you go to the nation of Ethiopia. I was scared. Honestly, I was very frightened by the whole thought. Then he started talking to me. He said, I've asked many people to go, but they said no. Some went, but it got hard and they came back. Because it's not an easy place by a lot of standards to live. When I first arrived, there was war, conflict. Things are shut down. God put me in the nation. I travel with soldiers. I carry a Kalashnikov. It's a Russian firing weapon. Wherever I go, I have to have security. We travel in four-wheel drives. I'll tell you about traveling the nation maybe today, maybe some other time. But So I have to live through conflict, through war. The U.S. Embassy had left. They'd evacuated. There's no embassy personnel. And they cautioned and advised all foreigners to leave the nation. In essence, I'm really the only foreigner left in the country. And I'm perfectly fine with it. I have no fear, no nothing at all. God puts me with the right man as I enter the nation. He puts me with the right security details. And I travel the whole country right in the middle of the conflict with UN vehicles racing up and down the streets and world food programs trying to feed refugee migration problems because they're pushed out of the battle zones. And there's just thousands of people walking across vacant lands, starving. So the UN has these food trucks and security try to get so people don't die on the roads crossing the fields. That's where God puts me, right in the center of all that stuff. My life was very interesting, arriving in Ethiopia. I don't know one person. I don't speak one word of their language. I don't know anything about the country other than what I can Google. You can't Google very much in certain countries. You can't get very much accurate information. And as I started looking, a lot of the information was old because COVID had been in the country, which had wiped out all the tourist industry. So there's no visitors writing anything current about what it's like to be in the country. So Jesus is having coffee with me. He's talking to me about going to the nation of Ethiopia. He said, I've asked many to go, and they said no. And I didn't answer. I didn't know what to say. This is what really kind of started everything for me. He said to me, please, please go. And I started crying. Because what I heard wasn't the word please, but the heart of God in the word please. We know that the word is a container of faith and power and creative ability. His word. So when he said, please, it's like all the heart of God was in that word, please, go. I've asked others to go, and they said no. Some went, and they came back. And I said, okay. I felt that incredible compassion of God for this nation of people. And I said, okay, I'll go. I'll go. He said, you go. I have two grown children here in America, in the Seattle area. They both have their families. They're both fine. I'm a single white male, so... I guess that's why, I don't know. He said this. He said, I'll take care of your children in America. You go. Because he knows that's what a father's going to start thinking. What about my family? So I said, okay, I'll go. He said, if you'll go, because he wasn't sure, you know, there's still hesitation sometimes. He says, if you'll go, I'll add 50 years to your life. I said, I don't like old people. (laughs) Because I said, that'll make me 120. I don't like old people. This is why this is for mature audiences. He said, I'm going to change your thinking about old people for a minute. I said, okay. He said, at 120 years of age, Moses climbed the mountain. His eyes were not dim, and his natural force for producing children had not been abated. He could still produce offspring at 120, which means there's strength and virility in his body. There's capability and flexibility to climb mountains. So that was the first transformation Jesus did while he was sitting with me about old people. It might say old, but we think of old as needing to go to Virginia Mason or Swedish Hospital or something, or being sure we got a good health care program, or being sure we've got a burial plan. We in America think of, we encapsulate old with these other things. But he said, no, this is old. Here's 120. This is what you visually will live and look like. And then he said, I'm going to give you Caleb. After Caleb and Joshua crossed over into the Promised Land, it's around Joshua chapter 14. If you'll look in verse 6 through 15, I'm going to read it from the Amplify because it contains a few words that are kind of interesting. Starting in verse 6, it says, Then the sons of Judah approached Joshua and Caleb, and Caleb said to Joshua, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning me and you and Kadesh Barnea. So if we go back in time just a little bit, like 40 years in time, the 12 spies went to look at the land. And then they came back and said, This is really, truly a land that flows with milk and honey. They brought back the big cluster of grapes. They said, it's a great place. And 10 tribal leaders said, but there's giants in the land, and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And Joshua and Caleb said, it's true that there's giants in the land, but the Lord's given us the land. We're well able to overcome it. So that's the backstory to this position here. Now, fast forward 40 years, and Caleb and Joshua are now in the promised land. And Caleb comes to Joshua because he's the commander. And Joshua's dealing out the divisions of the land. And Caleb says, give me my land that the Lord promised 40 years ago or 45 years ago to me. He says, because I'm as strong today as I was 45 years ago. And that's where the Lord stopped and said, you're as strong today as you were 45 years ago. You receive everything by faith, but you're as strong today as you were 45 years ago. So you got the vision of Moses as 120. Now think of your strength 45 years ago. I said, I was in my 30s. That was a good time. So that's you. That's your strength. That's your vitality. That's your energy level. You're as strong today as you were 45 years ago. If you look at that a little bit more, he says, if you come down to verse 9, he says, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Be assured that the land on which your foot has walked will be your inheritance to you and your children always, because you followed the Lord, my God, completely. And in verse 10, he says, Now look, the Lord has made me live. Just as he said, these 45 years since the Lord spoke that word. So when Caleb believed the word 45 years previously, he believed it, and that word kept him young and strong for 45 years. The word of God allowed no degeneration to take place in his body. He says, I'm as strong today as I was 45 years ago when the Lord said to me, Caleb took the word, believed the word, and walked 45 years on that truth that God had given to him. Every time I go back to Ethiopia, the men that I hang out with, Say, Jerry, you just come back. Every time I see you, you just look younger. If I get time, I'll tell you why that started to happen to me. But it's because of believing the word that Jesus gave me when he came to my house about Moses being 120. Then he took me to Caleb, where he says to Joshua, I'm as strong today as I was 45 years ago. He tells the reason why, because God made this promise to us that this would be our land. We're strong because of the word of God that I live on. I travel and live on this word of God. So all these 45 years that we've been waiting for these other people to die, we have to be out here 40 years to wait for this generation to die off before we can go in. I've lived by that word. I watched Mephibosheth die. I watched Abraham the third die. I watched all these people die around me. Like my mom said, I don't want to be in this place for old people. I don't want to be in an old people church. That's why this song is for mature audiences. (laughs) So. Caleb lived by the word that has spoken into his heart by God. That word became rhema to him, not just written. And he lived off of it. He'd already seen the promised land. He knew what was there. He kept a vision of it. He kept the word moving through him, which kept his body regenerating. Because that's exactly what the scripture says. I went, wow. But then I said, Jesus, I had another objection. I said, I don't like the skin of old people. You know, their skin is kind of weird. It gets these spots on it. It gets a little shrinky. It gets a turkey neck kind of stuff. I said, I don't like old people's skin. Most old people don't like their skin either. <laughs> right? So I now have that objection. Okay, I got the Moses thing. I got the Caleb thing. But I don't like old people's skin. And he says, okay, I want you to follow me to the story about Naaman the leper, the Syrian general, who in his household, they had captured some Hebrew people. And a little Hebrew girl was a servant in their household. And she said to the master, probably the lady of the house, I wish my master Naaman would go see the prophet in Israel because he would heal him because Naaman's got leprosy. He's a general. He's right below the king in their country, but he's got leprosy. We know leprosy is a skin disease. And so when I told Jesus, I don't like old people's skin, he takes me to Naaman. And he says, now imagine what this leprosy looked like on this Syrian general that the little girl says, I wish my master would go get healed because his skin is horrible. If you kind of know the story, Naaman goes and the party tells him anything except go dip in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman kind of objects and says there's better water in Syria. The rivers are cleaner. The rivers where I live are very dirty. Not dirty like pollution dirty, just muddy, milky. Not that clean, beautiful, like Seattle, Brook, Spring, Trout looking water. It's dirty water. So Naaman's objecting. And then his men say, look, if the guy had told you to do something really powerful, you would have done it, and then you would have gotten it. But he's asked you to do something simple. Just go do it. So the Bible says, at the word of God, he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River, and he came up, and his skin was fresher than a child's. At the word of God, he obeyed, and his skin was fresher than a child's. So the Lord said, obey my word, your skin will be fresher than a child's. So now I'm pretty well stuck Okay, He's taking care of my objection to being 120 or more because he said, I'll add 50 years to your life. I can climb a mountain at 120. I'm as strong today as I was 45 years ago, and I'll have skin fresh like a child's. I said, okay, okay, I'll go. I had already said I'd go, but he knew what my objections still were in my head. So we talked about it, talked it through. He said, there's a condition. You have to sell everything you have, give it all away, and come follow me. And I told you about, I had a very good career. Very successful career. I built a beautiful home in Maple Valley on a golf course, Frank Lloyd Wright home. The woman I was married to went to Europe, spent a month in Europe buying chandeliers and all kinds of luxury things for the home. It was kind of a mini palace. It was beautiful. Put an in-ground swimming pool in with a big diving off rock like cliffs in the backyard. Because I had two kids, a boy and a girl. I wanted all their friends to hang out at our house. So I built a small resort. And that's what people would think of it when they come there. You know, we kept the pool. It's outdoors. It's cold like here. The water's 90 degrees year-round. And has underground lights. It's just an amazing place. The floors, she went to Europe, and the museums there, they have cork floors. So she got the cork floors. You walk on them, they're quiet and soft. And then copper ceilings. It was really kind of cool. And then she went to Murano, Italy, to buy the chandeliers. And had the Murano glass made into chandeliers. And so all that stuff was shipped in these containers together. The woman I was married to... I'll tell you this, because this is for mature audiences, right? She's not my wife. The Lord corrected me. When you die, the marriage covenant ceases to exist. So you cannot call her your wife, because your words contain power. You cannot say, my wife this, my wife that, because you're going to remarry. And that covenant is separated through death. So it's the woman you were married to for 35 years, not your wife. You can't have two wives. You can't have the wife that's in heaven and the wife that's on earth. You can't have that. Now, I don't say that's for everybody. That's how God talked to me. For me, that's how he cleared my thinking. Because it was very interesting that the woman I was married to for 35 years, she picked the day and the date and the time she's going to die and go to heaven. So we go through the cancer doctors in Seattle and all the stuff you go through and the treatments and all the things. And she beat cancer the first time. It came back later and metastasized, went throughout her body. And she comes to me and says, I'm not going to fight this time. I'm finished. The of spirits operated very strongly in the woman I was married to. And way before we even had children, she'd gone to heaven a couple of times, and the Lord showed her fields and, and flowers and colors and taught her about how everything in heaven has a voice and how it sings, and there's a message that comes from the flora and the fauna and the colors. And it helped us when we started building homes with colors and designs and things. But the part, she says to me, when we got married in San Francisco, and then we were in street ministry with the Salvation Army in Dallas, Texas, She said, at that time, I knew there was a big call on your life, and we've known it from the time we met, that God had a big call for your life. And we went through that season of doing everything that God wanted us to do. And then one day, the Lord said, you're finished here in Dallas. And I said, okay, what's next? He said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to do what you want to do. He said, no, I want to do what you want to do. I said, no, I want to do what you want to do. And he said, I want to do what you want to do. And I said, Lord, you have to give me a scripture for this, because I always follow your word. And he said, Delight yourself in the Lord, and I give you the desires of your heart. What's your heart's desires? I said, well, Lord, we've been married. We want to start a family. He said, start a family. I said, okay, we'll start a family then. So I get together with Linda, it's her surname, and we talk, and we say, well, if we're going to start a family, we can go anywhere in the world. I'd already lived in Peru and Central America and, and most of the United States. I went to law school in Colorado. She said, I think we should move to where I have family, because when we have children, then they'll have cousins and nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles, and it'd be easier, more fun. I said, okay, let's go to Seattle. Seattle's fine. So we moved to Seattle, started family. That was in our very early years, in the year two of 35. So now we're in year 34. She's about to die, 34, 35. And she says, we've always known that there's a big call in your life, but you set it aside for a season where we get children and businesses and You know, I could write a donation check for $100,000, and I did. You know, that was just a grace. Not me. It was just the grace that allows that to happen. And we had a foundation. We funded the foundation. Then she'd go around and help teen pregnancy aids and all kinds of things on her own side. So we had things we were doing, but we weren't fully in the river swimming. So she said, after cancer came back the second time, she says, I know I can be healed, but I'm going to heaven. That's what she said. I know I can be healed, but I'm going to heaven. Because God's got a call on your wife that's too big, and I don't want to do it, she said. I don't want to go. I don't know what she means. I don't even know what it is. This is way before Coffee with Jesus. And she says, I don't know what it is, but it's big. I know that, and I don't want to participate. She's from Finland, very fair-skinned, Nordic, Seattleite, you know, lots of family in the Nordic, Ballard kind of world. She says, so I don't want to do this, so I'm going to die and go to heaven on April 3rd, about this time of day. So we organize through the cancer care centers, and they allow you to do that if you choose to in your home, but you have to have a doctor there. They have to sign off a medical certificate. They have to have ability to check your heart rate and all that stuff. So we have the medical professionals there and the person that calls the coroner. So this is kind of this last part of it. So we're in the house, and we've made arrangements. So she had about eight or ten family members that she wanted to have one last prayer with and one last conversation with, and then she takes her last breath. She leans back in her recliner. She breathes her mouth stuck open, and her breath, and she's gone. And the medical doctor person and my son, he's holding his mother, and the doctor's there, and feel her pulse just go down, 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 down. You can see her skin color changing a little bit to more of a grayish. And uh, she, she was already gone. The body was finishing, but she had left. Then he pronounces her dead, called the a corner. They were expecting the call. About 35, 40 minutes later, Van shows up. They cover her with blankets. She gets in the gurney, the gurney in the back of the van, off she goes. But she was already gone. That was just the body. Before that day, she had called many of the family members together. When she had made the decision she was going to die, we asked her, what kind of things you want to do? And we had this whole list of things. We did them all. We used to have people over every weekend, we'd have these big barbecues or fiestas, buffets, and lots of socializing. Because people wanted us to come and see Linda and say goodbye or see what's going on. And I had people take me aside and say, are you sure she's going to die? She looks so beautiful. Because she'd given up everything. She had no stress, no worry, no anxiety. She was just anticipating heaven with no worries whatsoever. Her countenance actually changed. She got more beautiful and her skin got more beautiful. She was ready to go into glory. And glory had come to her to get ready to receive her. About a month before this departure date, we have this big gathering and everybody's there. I'm actually kind of sad, truthfully. I'm giving you the story and, and the most level emotional feelings that I can. And my children, they weren't excited that their mother had picked a day to go. They talked about her being there with the grandkids and all the things that we all dream about. But they knew. They'd gone to the cancer counseling doctor's things, and they, <coughs> they knew that their mother was not going to live. But she's in joy. We're all in kind of halfway into sorrow, but she's so happy, she keeps the rest of us kind of up, you know, about her departure. One day, there's about 15, 18 people in the room. She says, I want you to all know I want Jerry to remarry. We never talked about this. You know, we talked about many things, whether it was sitting on the couch. Sometimes she had to sit up because of pain, but she wouldn't let pain control her. Sometimes we're in bed. I'm rubbing her body to help her feel a little better relief. So we never talk about, I'm still married at that time. So I don't even think of another woman. That's not my mind. But she gathers everybody together and says, now I want your dad to remarry, meaning me. I want Jerry to remarry. I'm shocked. I don't know why she's having a conversation like this. There's a pause, and, they, and she goes, because we all know Jerry can't take care of himself. <laughs> <laughs> He's good at some things, but he isn't good at many things. So, so we need somebody to take care of him. And we know your dad. We know Jerry. He likes to do outdoor things. She's finished, so the sun is not a pleasant thing for her. It takes her 25 minutes to get enough sunscreen on her face and put a big hat on and long sleeves to go outside because the sun's very difficult on her, her body type. So she says, so I've been thinking about it. Your dad needs to marry a dark-skinned woman, and she needs to be outdoorsy. She needs to be able to hike and go all these places because we do lots of camping. We've got two or three boats. We've got two or three houses, you know, all outdoorsy kind of stuff. And she says, you know, I go half the time. Either other half the time, I just go with my sister and we go do something else. Because your dad's an outdoor person. He has lots of fun doing outdoor things. So we need to find him a dark-skinned woman that's very outdoorsy, that likes to do a lot of things outside. And she said, so I've been thinking, there's a sports store in Seattle called REI. And she says, I think I'm going to go buy a pair of boots And put them by the front door. And the girl who fits these boots, it's like, that's a Cinderella story. (laughs) So so the girl who fits the boots, you all know it's the right woman for your dad. So it's like, okay, all right, I don't get this at all. Remember, Ethiopia is not anywhere near the picture. And I'm not anywhere at all thinking about, because Jesus came to my house a year after she passed away, after she went to heaven. This is completely foreign thinking to me. It's not in my mind at all. But anyway, we all receive it, and it's okay. That's her thing. Then I told you, she has a prayer with every family member, has the last conversation with them, and then she breathes her last. Doctor pronounces her dead. Coroner takes her body away. And now life begins for me. And that's when uh, I think to myself, well, I could do anything. But what do I want to do? The world's available to me. I used to live on the island of Guam, which is why the veterans thing is a very big part of my heart, because Guam is part of the big military island. has done many things. Have many friends on the island of Guam. I took my whole family to Guam from 2010 to 2014. So we live on the island of Guam. And I did work in Hong Kong and in the Philippines and Korea, Japan. And as I mentioned before, I used to be in Peru. Those were days different before I was saved. I went to Peru and Colombia. So I'm sitting down just thinking, what could I possibly do? And that's when Jesus shows up. So I got a plan for you. How about Ethiopia? There's dark-skinned women. It's outdoorsy, it's sunshiny, and you can hike. (laughs) (laughs) So he kind of checked all the boxes for me after the visitation. And when he said, please, I knew his heart was in it. And he put his heart, my heart, for the nation. And I can't get away from it. This trip here to America was completely against my will. I never want to leave Ethiopia. I'm there all the time. I don't want to leave. So this journey, I've been in America a few weeks. i got a few more weeks until I get to go back. But a month before, I know I'm scheduled to come back. And the primary reason I'm coming back is to tell my children, I think I've met the woman in Ethiopia I'm going to marry. And I want to have a face-to-face conversation with them and tell them the amazing story, how God arranged this divine appointment for this woman. Because I've had many girlfriends in the nation. God's used each one of them to teach me culture, to teach me orthodox religion, which is is interesting there. I've, I've been with beautiful Muslim ladies into their culture. God's used the women to take me into their culture. I remain a virgin since my wife passed away, since she go to heaven. God said, stay a virgin. I said, okay. He said, don't deposit your seed anywhere. I need you. I need the seed that you have inside of you for the nation. I'll bring you the right womb and the right woman. Woman. I'll bring you the right woman for, <laughs> for your seed to produce offspring for the nation, the same as I did for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I ordained and arranged a marriage for Isaac through his father Abraham and through the father's servant Gehazi, who went to find the bride for Isaac, to find Rebecca, So you just stay faithful. I'll bring the right bride for you. And I'll give you all the points along the way, so you'll know it's for me. So I have, so I know this is going to happen. That's why I come back to tell my children the whole story. And they're rejoicing, because one of the things that happened was, their mother has been in heaven for about a year. Jesus comes down from heaven, has a conversation with me. I'm scared. I don't quite understand a lot of it, like Peter did on the rooftop. So then I spend a few weeks, maybe a month, pondering what to do. And I'm studying about Ethiopia. I'm learning about it. I'm studying it all through the scriptures and I'm studying it on Google to try to learn about it. And the first thing that I find out in the Bible is you're supposed to pray for the leaders of the nations. So I studied the Prime Minister and the First Lady of Ethiopia. I started studying them, praying for them as the leaders of the nation, and I find out that there's two primary tribal groups in Ethiopia, one's from the north called Amharic, one's from the south called Oromo. Those are the two primary dominant ethnic tribal categories. And they're typically not killing each other, but they don't get along. There's differences in culture and biases and things like that, but they're not hatred of each other, but they don't get along. As I'm studying the Prime Minister and the First Lady, I find out that they're both born-again, spirit-filled, tongue-talking, Bible-worshipping Christians. And the First Lady's on YouTube, on her knees, worshipping God and praying for repentance for her nation. And the Prime Minister's always declaring, we're where we are because God is in our nation, making these things happen. So I study a little further, like I said, after finding out they're both Christians, and I find out that she, the First Lady, is from the Amara region in the north, and the prime minister's from the southern region. He's a Romo from the south. And God put them together to make the two one flesh. So he said to me, this is symbolic of the leadership of the nation becoming one. The prime minister and the first lady. The two cultures blending. I'm making peace throughout the nation. And you're to go participate in it. I'm going to set you with the leaders of the nation. I'm going to show you everything you need to do. Wow. Isn't that something? i just like, really? You're going to do that? Yeah. You just have to sell everything you have. Give it all away. Come follow me. I said, Lord, I've had everything. There's nothing that I could ever want. I've had everything. And I know the value of having everything, and I know the value of having very little. I can't say it's 100% easy. I got rid of everything. Except I have one beautiful black Lexus coupe in the driveway. And kept one little small house to have as a habitation. One beautiful new Lexus in the driveway. I still have to have my image, right? Gotta still have the right car. <laughs> 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 I want to go to Bible study in the right car, you know. And the word said, sell the Lexus. I said, well, how am I going to get around? How am I going to go to Bible State? He said, you're going to ask for help. I said, I never asked for help. <laughs> he said, I know. We have to teach you how to ask for help. <laughs> okay. I said, but you know, I'm not good at selling things. Because everything else, I just have my nephews post everything and do everything. So everything I sold, I let my family handle all the distribution of assets. All I just said was, here's the titles, because I don't owe anything on anything. Take it all away. And they just sell everything, put it in my account, and I give it all away. I said, Lord, you know I'm not good at selling things. He said, call Luke. Well, I knew who he meant. I hadn't seen the man for about four years since we'd gone to Guam. Maybe even after that, a little bit. But Luke used to be like our houseboy. Luke took care of my swimming pool. When the cars needed to go in for service, he picked up the cars, took them into the dealership. When the boats needed to get ready, he was sure that the boats were ready to go out on the lake that day. So he was like a household Abraham servant. He did everything. Fully trustworthy, competent in every category. I said to the Lord, I don't even know how to call Luke. The Lord didn't say anything. So I went up to Home Depot to get a couple things for the house. Remember, I haven't seen this guy for five or six years. In Home Depot, there's Luke. (laughs) So I said, hey, Luke. And the Lord said, see, you just called him. (laughs) I said, hey, remember that other Lexus that I had? And then I got that new one. I said, I got this new Lexus coupe in the driveway. And I want to sell it. He says, my daughter just took her driver's test with her license for high school. She has a driver's license. I'll buy it. I said, "Okay, come on, by." And so in two days, the car was gone, and now I have nothing. So I want to go to Bible study. The Lord says, call Pastor Mike. Call Mike De Lorenzo." I say, hey, Mike, can I get a ride to church? I don't have any way to get there. He says, yeah, i and get you. So for the next six months, I have to ask people for rides and ways to get around, trust the Lord, plan my day better. So that's how God led me to a position of trust in Him. And then I have no money. I won't go too much into that story because I just want to get into the part where later I asked the Lord, why was it so important that I give everything away? Is it because you knew how to make money? You knew how wisdom-wise, business-wise, acumen-wise, contact-wise, you know how to get money, generate wealth, and make things happen. But you don't know how to fully follow me for funds. So I take you on a different road of training, much like I send the disciples out the first time two by two. I tell them, take nothing for your journey. No extra bag, no funds to collection, not an extra jacket. Just go two by two with nothing. And they come back and they report Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So all the other things you told us happened. Everybody provided for us. We had everything we needed. And the demons obey us, right? That's what he told me. He says, this is how I train my apostles. I didn't like to hear that word apostle because I don't like to be thinking like that. It's a little hard for me to accept some of the things God does, but I do eventually. So I have to go to these different places and talk. And one day this man says, I think we ought to raise some money for Jerry. I don't tell anybody I don't have anything. I never ask for money. I never say a word. Because remember, I'm not good at asking for help. And my wife says, he doesn't know how to take care of himself. <laughs> <laughs> so I never say a word. But anyway, this man said, I think we, a, we were at a men's uh, little household breakfast thing. Somebody get a bowl out of the kitchen. They put some money in it. I thought, wow, that's interesting. That's how people do that, huh? Mm-hmm. So I, I go out to the car I have. My daughter, she said, take this other car. I'm going to get a new car. Take the old, the Volkswagen Jetta, drive it for a while. I said, okay. So now I have a Volkswagen Jetta to drive for a little bit. I come back out to the car, and I take the money out of the bowl that I'd received from them. I put it on the car seat, and I'm giving thanks to God. I say, Lord, that's amazing. People gave me money. I've never had anybody give me money. I always create wealth, because I always used to say, my father's a the creator. Therefore, as the son of a creator, I create wealth. That's what I do. I don't look for a job. I look for opportunities to create wealth. And through that mindset, I created lots of wealth. Yeah, and it was a blessing. This is interesting. We stayed in the same house for 10 extra years when we could have paid a million dollars cash to buy something. I drove a 10-year-old Dodge van when I could have paid cash for any car I wanted. One day, the woman I was married to, she comes to the driveway. I'm getting in the van to go somewhere. She goes, you need to get another car. I said, what's wrong with my van? It looks nice. It drives fine. She said, it doesn't fit the image of where you are and what you're doing. You pull up these places in this old van. I said, well, it's good for construction work. It's good for this. And she said, you need to get a different car. She's got a BMW. She says, you need to get a different car. I said, well, okay, if you say so. I trust your judgment. So, that's when I bought my first, I don't remember if that one was a BMW or a Lexus at that time. But it was the point was, I could have had anything I wanted, but I didn't want anything. Because for me, it wasn't about how much I can look. Later, it kind of traps you a little bit. You kind of get enamored by your appearance. So, God was fixing all that stuff in me. So, anyway, I go out to the car. There's a $100 bill. Wow, that was a lot of money. And there was a $1 bill. And there was a 5 and a 10, a couple other bills. And I'm looking at them, and I'm praying over it. I don't know why I'm praying, but I'm just praying over the currency. And the Lord says, flip them so that they're the same side. You know, there's this side and there's this side, the currency. And so I put them so they're the same side. He says, now look at the $100 bill and look at the $1 bill. And I'm praying over it. I said, Lord, there's not much you could do with a $1 bill. And there's quite a few things you can do with a 100 but you still can't do a whole lot with it. But there's a $1 and a 100 And I'm just praying over it, and I'm talking to the Lord about, I'm thankful for both of them. I'm equally thankful. But then I say, but Lord, there's not a lot I can do with a one. He says, look at the one, what does it say? And then look at the hundred, what does it say? On the back of both of them, it says, in God we trust. So he said, whether you have a one or whether you have a 100, your trust is in me, not in the size of the dollar or how many of them you have. And I said, okay, you've cured me. I got it. I'm fine with it. So that's how he purged me of the old nature towards wealth and towards money. Oh, the hair. Okay. So you have to turn for a minute to um, 2 Kings chapter 1. It's just two verses. And it's in verses 7 and 8. And this is a story about the king wants to know who this guy just met. He says it this way. The king asked them, What was the appearance of the man who came to meet you and said these things to you? And they answered him in the Amplified. It says, they answered him, He was a hairy man with a wide weather band around his loins. And Ahazad, the king, said, That's Elijah the Tishbite. So the prophet was known by his appearance. The quick story of how it even started, I went to South Korea from Ethiopia, to help send coffee into South Korea from Ethiopia. And while I was there, in their culture, gray hair is not very favorable. Because in the corporate culture, all the executives have black hair. So if your hair starts to gray out a little bit, you can lose your status and you're soon to be exited from the corporate structure. So at this spa I go to, where they sit in hot tubs and cold water, plunges and things like that, and bathe, they have a man who colors hair in there. So they say, Jerry, how about we color your hair? I said, no, I'm happy with the hair I have. No, we think you like crouching tiger. We want to put stripe down the center of your head. <laughs> so I say, okay, go ahead, because it'll grow out. You know, I'm not too concerned about it. So they put stripe down the center, just down the center, crouching tiger. So I come back to Ethiopia. It's starting to grow out. So I go see the barber man. And he says, oh, that's interesting. So I say, yeah, just cut it off and trim it like you do. He says, no, no, no. I think we ought to expand it. Why don't we do more zebra stripes? He calls them zebra stripes. He says, why don't we turn your whole head into the idea of a zebra? And I'm like, okay, well, it'll still grow out. That's my thought. So we do it. So he does it. I walk out of the place down onto the streets of the capital city of Addis Ababa, central Ethiopia, and people are looking. (laughs) By the dozens and then by the hundreds, Wherever I go, I go into a three-story shopping mall and the younger girls are up on the top railing taking selfies of my head, <laughs> posting it on social media there, and telling their boyfriends, you ought to do this. We need a new hairstyle. <laughs> so it becomes very popular in a very short time. And I'm still thinking, it's a little hard to wear sometimes. You can't be invisible in the least. And I'm thinking, I'm going to cut it off. And the Lord says, you can't cut it off. But this is where God gets in. He says, you can't cut it off. I said, why not? He says, because John had camel hair and you have zebra hair. I said, ha, ha, ha. He wore camel hair. He did not have camel hair. <laughs> that's what I said to the Lord. I said, he wore it. He did not have it. I know he always gets me through humor. And if I ever get to tell you humor stories, you'd just laugh the way God does things with me I'm humor. So he says, no, that's true. But also Samuel, the prophet, was born from Hannah. And Hannah, when she made a commitment to dedicate him to the Lord, No razor ever touched his head. So how do you think Samuel looked? He never had a razor at his head. How do you think he looked at 20 years old? Did he have dreadlocks? Did he have wild afro? What was his appearance from his hair like? Then he took me to about the 17th or 18th or 19th chapter of the book of Acts, and Paul, the apostle Paul, who we all respect, shaved his head bald to fulfill a vow. So the Lord said, you can be bald, or you can be wild afro, or you can have zebra hair. (laughs) I said, I'll take the zebra hair. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how God set it into me about hair having a certain draw to it, a certain dedication to it, in the scriptures. Because I would never pick this none of us would go do this kind of thing to our hair, except maybe for Halloween. <laughs> so So I'm back in America here this last couple weeks, and I'm thinking again, maybe I should just trim it, cut it, something. Then the Lord really stepped on my toe and he said, don't you know the very hairs on your head are numbered? They're numbered. There's a count. There's a specific purpose. Why would you count the hairs on your head? There's a specific purpose for hair that God has ordained. I said, okay, I'm done. I'll never confront you on that topic again. However you want my hair to be, however short, like shave like Paul, however long like Samuel, or however strange, I'm in. I'm in 100%. You just take me and use me as you want. Let am to give you this last scripture because it's kind of funny. This is really kind of interesting. So he was known as a hairy man. And then uh, go to Isaiah, probably around chapter 20. I didn't write it down, but I kind of know where the scripture is because the Lord always bothers me with this one. Isaiah chapter 20. I'll just read a couple scriptures because this is the one where God made it so interesting to me that what you studied and prayed about and lived in American churches is not the whole Bible. Your cultural upbringing in America, in Bible, does not represent the entire concept of the Bible. So I have to reprogram you to your open-mindedness to look at the Scripture without a bias to learn from me. Last night people were asked a lot about Muslims in Ethiopia. There's many Muslims in Ethiopia, not a great deal, but there's a number of Muslims. But here's what I find, if I sit down and talk with them, a lot of them are Christian Muslims. So the way we label Muslim, I don't get too concerned about because he loves Jesus. And after we talked for a while, he says, you know, I I don't talk to too many Christians because you guys don't like us. I said, well, I don't have any problem with it. He says this way to me. He says, you're not like other Christians. I said, you're not like them either. (laughs) He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you pray five times a day. A lot of my Christian friends don't pray five times a day. They're not that conscious of God throughout the day. You're conscious of God throughout the day. You get down on your knees five times a day and pray. You're not like other Christians. He laughed. He said, we should have a beer sometime. That's what he (laughs) said. So when we get to Isaiah, it says here that there was a time of year in verse 1, and then in verse 2 it says, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah. And here's what he said. Go untie the sackcloth from your hips and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked, stripped from the waist down and bare feet. I said, please, God, no. (laughs) So, in the next verse, the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has walked stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and a forewarning concerning Cush or Ethiopia. So, maybe the hair is for three years. I don't know. I don't get too concerned about it. I just walk daily. So, in the same way, the king of Assyria will lead Cushite exiles and all that stuff. It says in the Amplified in verse 4, the last part of it says, Even with his buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt, to the shame of the world. So we have to understand that sometimes God takes us and makes us very unusual to the world to get their attention. And we represent the Most High God. We represent the Holy Spirit of God. We represent the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And we have a chance to draw their attention if we'll let God do it his way. We don't do it to show off. We don't do it to be different. We do it because God ordained and set it as his plan or purpose for us to win a nation. Because Isaiah's call here is about the nation. My call is only one call, and it's about the nation of Ethiopia. So God tells me, you're going to Ethiopia. Make a plan to go to Ethiopia. I'll skip the how I ever got the money to go to Ethiopia, because that's a story in itself. But the part that you want to hear, I fly from Seattle to Chicago to get ready to board Ethiopian Airlines to fly to Ethiopia. At the airline counter, they say, your visa has been canceled because of the war. You can't go as a tourist. There's no tourist visas. I say, but I'm supposed to go. She says, well, you have a ticket, but you don't have a visa. I say, how do I get that? She said, I don't know if you can, but if you ever could, you'd have to go to the Ethiopian embassy in Washington, D.C. And I'm like, remember I said people gave me $1 bills and $5 bills and $10 bills. That's all I have. Now I have to make an extra flight to Washington, D.C. that was no budget for it. And I have to spend a night in a very expensive hotel somewhere, even if it's a Motel 6, it's still expensive in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., or even in the heart of Chicago to get to the airport. So I'm actually freaking out. How am I ever going to do this? So I call Mike DeLorenzo in Seattle, and I tell him the story, and I'm, I'm actually crying. And I said, Mike, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said this honestly. I said, there's a bridge outside the window, not very far from here. I think I should just jump off the bridge and die. He starts laughing. I was serious. He said, Jerry, there's no great testimony without a great test. There's a test in this. I said, you think so? He said, it could only be because everything else has been ordained by God. There's got to be a test in this, a testimony in this. So I said, okay. So I flew to Washington, D.C. I go to the Ethiopian embassy. I wait all day. There's hundreds of people in there trying to get visas just to transit through the nation to go wherever they're going. So at the end of the day, I'm the last person in the room. There's nobody else in the embassy but me. And the director walks out with his assistant. The whole place is ready to close. And he says, Mr. Crawford, I know you've been here all day. I know you have a ticket, but we're out of visas. We have no more visas. But I'm going to call New York and see if I can borrow a visa for you. I said, okay. So he comes out an hour later. He says, I have some bad news. I can't get you a tourist visa. But I was able to borrow one that's now pasted in your passport. It's a two-year unlimited multi entry visa. You can travel in and out of the country anytime you want. Nobody will hassle you for the next two years. I said, wow, that's a miracle. He says, I don't know if it's a miracle, but nobody gets them. So it might be a miracle. <laughs> We don't give those out. That's the only thing they had left in New York. And it's like old and dusty. (laughs) But it's in your passport now. You can travel. So that's how I get there. So now I'm delayed and I spend this extra money. Before I get on the airplane, the lady says to me at the airline counter, she says, do you mind if I change your seat? By that time I say, ma'am, you could put me in baggage claim. I, 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 I do not care. The overhead bin, I probably will fit. Just get me on the plane. So she does her little thing on the keyboard, gives me a new boarding pass, and I go sit down in the airplane. What she had done was she changed it to like a more of an exit row kind of thing between me and the there so There's a lot of leg room. She was just being kind. I'm thanking God. Oh, this is a nicer seat. And then there's a vacant seat, and then there's a man sitting next to me on the aisle. Dark skinned man who lives in Atlanta, lives in Ethiopia. He's going to Ethiopia to help his father who needs to go to medical treatment in Israel. So he's sitting on the plane. It's half empty because nobody's going to Ethiopia for any reason. He says, why are you going to Ethiopia? He says, there's COVID, wiped it out, and the conflict and the war. Why are you going? I said, do you believe in God? He said, yeah, I believe in God. So I told him the whole story. It's a 14-hour flight. I tell him all the story about Jesus having coffee with me. And I get to the part where I told him about one of the things Jesus said to me was, I made the Ethiopian people from the dust of the ground. And everything that nation needs is in the ground. I want you to go to that nation and bring their wealth out of the ground and give it to the people. I said, how am I supposed to do that? I know how to build houses. I don't know how. How do you take wealth out of the ground? He said, you're going to do it through agriculture and through mining. I said, I don't know anything about either of those. Here's what he said. I will seat you with the people you need to know for agriculture and mining. Well, at that time that Jesus told me that, 14 months before, I don't know what what all that means, but I remember everything, every detail because I came into the high wrote down everything he told me. I will seat you with the people you need to know in the nation for agriculture Mind, So I climb in the airplane. I'm talking to this man. His English name is Richie. He lives in Atlanta. And I tell him the whole story. And he says to me, it sounds like God put you on this airplane for me. I said, how could that possibly be? He said, our family, we're the largest private agricultural producers in the nation. And you've been seated next to me. The woman changed my seat to sit me next to him. God said, I will seat you with the people you need to know. And I'm sitting next to the private family holding company, the largest agricultural producers in the nation. So he says, I'm your benefactor. Everything you need in the nation, I take care of it. Wherever you need to fly, I'll pay for it. Wherever you need to stay, I'll pay for it. Wherever you need four-wheel drives and vehicles, I'll pay for it. I'll send my people with you. I'll provide all the security forces, all the army, all the guns, everything you need to travel the nation. We've been on the airplane five hours. God makes this total arrangement. And he says, where are you going? I said, well... I started off, I thinking I was going to go to the capital as God had told me to add us, but instead the Lord came to my house another time just before I'm to leave. He's, he hits me on the chest, comes to my bed and wakes me up and says, I want you to go to Gondar. G-O-N-D-A-R. It's the ancient capital of Ethiopia. So I book a room in Gondar in northern Ethiopia. And so I tell Richie, I said, well, I'm, I'm flying to this town called Gondar. He says, that's our hometown.
0: That's our family.
1: We're from Gondar. I said, okay. That's why it all just was the Lord. So in order to answer Dr. Johnson's question about it, I just had my one-year anniversary in June. Now it's four months later after June. During this time between our one-year anniversary and now, we've done all this agricultural work in the country, thousands and thousands of acres, hectares and acres. And he comes to me and says, you know, Jerry, one of my relatives has this mining operation that they haven't started mining, but they have all the stuff from the government. I could buy it from him, but I don't want to run it. But I'll pay for it if you want to run it. I said, uh, I think that's the Lord. We have a mining company now. He said, I, I can make you a 49% partner because I have to own 51% as the national. He you was know, the foreigner. So now you own 49% of a major mining operation in Ethiopia. And I'll pay for everything. When you have the money or when the company produces the money, you just pay me back the other half. No worries. I said, okay. So now I own a major mining operation in Ethiopia with no money. <laughs> 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 Yeah, so this has been going on and on and on and on and on and on. I have a seventh floor office in the most beautiful office building in Ethiopia. It's the most beautiful office. All modern glass and stone and gray and all uh, iMac computers. It's just an amazing place. So that's my office. Yeah, I came from the corporate world. So this is my office. And then I don't have a place. So I live in, out of a suitcase for more than a year. Going from a hotel to a pension to a mud house with straw. Wherever I can go. But God makes arrangements, helps me get some money, and now I live on the seventh floor in a brand-new, beautiful apartment building where all fully furnished, designed by a decorator from Europe. It's the most beautiful. People come into my apartment going, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. They come to my office. This is the most beautiful office I've ever been in. Here's the miracle of it. Both those things are miracles. The seventh floor of the seventh floor. Seventh is, in their language, Sabbath, Sabbath. And it also means rest. In Genesis chapter 2, on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. It says in Amplified, it says, his work was completed. So God said to me, it took me a while to get these buildings ready for you, but everything's completed. And now the nation you live in, everything you need to do in this nation for eternity is already completed. You're not making anything happen. You're bringing heaven to earth in Ethiopia. I'm going to make them the richest nation on the planet so that the kings of the earth come to the brightness of the rising and say... There must be a God in Ethiopia because no single leader could make this nation this wealthy and this successful and this peaceful this quickly. There must be a God in Ethiopia. That's his purpose and plan. And he said, I'm aligning it perfectly with Israel. Israel and Ethiopia are one. You'll find Ethiopia in the story of the Garden of Eden. A river comes out, breaks into four tributaries. The second river goes to the land of Cush or the land of Abyssinia or the land of Mesopotamia. They're all the same name for Ethiopia. So he said, I've had Ethiopia from the beginning, from the Garden I want it back in the garden pristine condition that I intended it to be. And if I told you the rest of the story, you'd be amazed because in that same coffee time with Jesus, he bring the Queen of Sheba from heaven to meet me. And it says in Matthew 12, it says that the Queen of the South shall stand up in the last days in the judgment and judge this generation. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And now one greater than Solomon is here, meaning Jesus. So she comes and Jesus brings her to my house or into the vision with her. And introduces us together. And he says, she's asked you to go. And she's taken her right hand of authority and put it in your hand. Because she reached out her hand into my hand. The last part was when she reached out her hand, her hand had been cut off, like by machete. So she was beautiful in every respect, but her right hand was missing. When I reached out to take her hand, it was so quick, she reached out her arm that did not have a hand. And when she reached it out and I touched where would be her hand, Jesus grew her hand out from her arm into my hand. And I'm looking at her hand and my hand like this. I look at the Lord and say, what is that? He said, your right hand is your hand of authority. It's what you scribe with. It's what you swear with. It's what you do many things with. It's the right hand of God. All these purposes for the right hand. But Ethiopia's had her right hand cut off. They lost their authority in the earth. That's why they're in poverty. That's why they're in conflict. That's why they're in famine. And now I've restored Ethiopia's authority through the queen of the south who resides in heaven. She's still called a queen. Her authority in heaven just like there's principalities and powers over principality over nations something, she's the ruler of Ethiopia in heaven. And she's come and put her right hand of authority in your hand, and now she's delegated her authority in the earth to you. And that's what you're to do.
0: I'll tell you, what, it's fascinating. Those people that are watching right now, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, just say, Lord, come into my heart, forgive me of my sins and my rebellion, be my Lord and Savior. Find a good church. Learn the ways of God. Study your Bible. You can telephone 360-629-5248. 360-629-5248. That's my office. We'll send you Christian literature. My website, www.worldministries.org. www.worldministries.org. Sign up for our newsletters. Again, we will send you bi monthly pastoral articles that will help you on your journey. God bless you.